Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. final episode of our Tis the Season theme. We've covered Saturnalia, Yule, Yalda, Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa. Now it's time for Christmas, and what perfect timing this is. Alright, let's get into the history of Christmas and see what connections we can make to the other holidays. This is definitely going to be our longest episode to date. There's just so much to cover. In general, there are parts of Christmas that are known all around the world. Held on December 25th each year, the religious aspect of the holiday celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ. Special church services are held around Christmas time. Beyond that, it's one of the biggest commercial holidays out there. Gifts of all sorts are given, not to mention cards and candy. Then we have Santa Claus, Christmas trees, stockings, music, stories, meals, family gatherings, and all sorts of Christmas decorations. The holiday is huge, but it didn't exactly emerge in a direct way. In fact, it's had a bumpy road to get here. At one point, it was even canceled, and it didn't become a national holiday here in the United States until 1870. So let's take a look at where it started and see how it grew into the holiday we know today. Initially, Easter was the main holiday in Christianity. Setting aside certain non-religious Easter traditions, such as Easter eggs, the Christian holiday celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As stated in the Bible, this took place three days after the crucifixion in around 30 CE. So originally, there was a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, but not of his birth. That didn't come along until later, sometime in the 4th century to be precise. It was in this time that officials in the church decided that the birth of Jesus should be celebrated. Now, we celebrated on December 25th. However, there is some debate on whether or not that is when he was born. Several hypotheses have been proposed based on a variety of factors. Included are some based on the winter solstice, or symbolism of the sun, or the arrangement of planets and stars, or calculations based on a holiday on March 25th. The latter refers to the Annunciation, placed nine months before Christmas as the time the Archangel Gabriel announced that Mary would become pregnant with the Son of God. Further debate points to clues in the Bible as indicators of when the birth took place. Some theologians suggest that Jesus was actually born in the spring. Most notable is the mention that shepherds were watching over their flocks on the night Jesus was born. This isn't something that would have been done during the winter. Shepherds took their flocks out to the fields in spring, which suggests that Jesus was indeed born in spring, not winter. But because we don't have a definite date, this debate is ongoing. Whatever the case, Saturnalia becomes involved. As you may recall, Saturnalia was a pagan celebration at the time of the winter solstice. Again, there are varying thoughts as to how Saturnalia became involved here. Some believe that it was absorbed by Christianity as a matter of coincidental timing. Others who believe the birth was in spring 
see it as the church looking to absorb the pagan festival into Christian beliefs while at the same time utilizing the existing celebration as a way to aid the adoption of the holiday. Of course, the trouble with the second option is that they would struggle to control the nature of the celebrations. At the same time, as I think I've said before, it's easier to adapt an existing celebration than it is to get people to embrace a new one. And as we've seen, many cultures already had celebrations based around the winter solstice. Whatever the case regarding Jesus' birth, Pope Julius I chose December 25th for the celebration of it. And by extension, it did begin to absorb the pagan traditions of Saturnalia. This is not entirely unlike what we saw with the history of Halloween, where the church absorbed, or at least tried to absorb, pagan traditions into a holiday more in line with Christian beliefs most notably Samhain. The scale and degree of success is different, but the idea is more or less the same. Whether Jesus was born on December 25th or not, choosing that day to celebrate his birth meant they could also use it to ease people away from the pagan celebrations. Not just Saturnalia, but Yule as well. The transition from pagan Saturnalia and Yule took place gradually, with Christianity nearly replacing pagan religion entirely. The rise of Christianity and replacement of pagan tradition was complex, at times gentle, at other times heavy-handed, and at other times downright violent. That's definitely beyond the scope of our theme this month, but it's also important to our theme as Christmas would not have replaced the pagan celebrations had it not succeeded. Imagine if the pagan religions in Rome, Scandinavia, and elsewhere had managed to push back against Christianity. We could very well still be celebrating Saturnalia. So, what did this transition look like? How did Christmas form while absorbing some pagan traditions? Well, at first, it was quite different. In the Middle Ages, Christians would attend church on Christmas Day. After that, things took a decidedly different turn from what we expect today. People didn't go home or to a family member's house for a nice dinner and some quality time together. Quite the contrary, they went out and partied and you'd be hard-pressed to call this party wholesome. In fact, it can be compared in some ways to Mardi Gras, according to some of the sources I've read. Wild and drunken celebration, to our minds more carnival than Christmas. A consequence of having the holiday on December 25th and not being able to fully control how it developed. Here we find an interesting tradition, the Lord of Misrule, as it's known in England, In Scotland, it's the Abbot of Unreason. In France, the Prince de Sots. This is a part of the Feast of Fools, which was during Christmastide in the Middle Ages. Historically, Christmastide began at sunset on December 24th and ended at sunset on January 6th. A version still exists in modern times with a change on the dates. The 12 days of Christmas, beginning on December 25th and ending on January 5th. Back in the Middle Ages, we find the Feast of Fools generally taking place on January 1st, which is also known as the Feast of the Circumcision of Christ. Yes, it's celebrating exactly what it sounds like. In a sense, this celebration kind of turned things on their head. A mock bishop or pope was elected for the day, ecclesiastical rituals became the subject of parody, and officials of low and high standing switched places. There's definite parallels to parts of Saturnalia and may indicate this was an adaptation by Christians. Of that much, though, we can't be certain. 
it's possible this arose separately from Saturnalia entirely. There are theories arguing both possibilities. Part of this Feast of Fools was that Lord of Misrule. This person was chosen by lot and presided over the festivities. This was typically a peasant or perhaps a subdeacon. Someone of lower standing got to be in charge for this one day. He had people who willingly acted as his subjects. The rich were expected to provide their best food and drink to the poor. You could almost conceive of this as these people repaying some sort of societal debt by helping the poor people on this one particular day, making themselves feel better in a way. Of course, it's also said that those who denied the poor might be subject to mischief by the people. Talk about everything being upside down. And yet, not the first time we've seen such a concept. So that was one day of what was Christmas tide in the Middle Ages. The medieval church did not care for it. It was hit with heavy condemnation. It took centuries to wipe out and was outright forbidden in 1431 by the Council of Basel, which was a council recognized by the Catholic Church, and as such, its decisions carried some weight. Later, in 1444, the theological faculty of the University of Paris issued their own document against it. Protestants condemned it, and for the most part it was gone, though some evidence shows similar festivals in France through the 1500s. So that's one of the very different celebrations that form the development of Christmas, as well as the end of said celebration. Now, did you know that Christmas was cancelled once? As in, the holiday in its entirety? It's true. For this, we move back to religious reform in 17th century Europe. A man named Oliver Cromwell led Puritan forces during the First English Civil War, which was waged from 1642 to 1646. They believed the reformation of the Church of England and the Elizabethan settlement were not sufficient, causing them to split from the Calvinists who supported it. The settlement was an attempt to address religious tensions that had enveloped England leading up to Elizabeth's reign. I'll try not to dwell too much on this, but it really helps understand how the turmoil formed and led to the cancellation of Christmas. King Henry VIII caused a lot of turmoil all on his own when he decided to break away from the Roman Catholic Church and instituted himself as the Supreme Head of the Church of England in 1536. Yes, that was his title, created for this purpose. His son, Edward VI, was the first monarch to be raised and rule as a Protestant. Following his death in 1547, Edward's half-sister, Queen Mary I, took the throne. Edward had tried to stop this, knowing she wasn't Protestant and would seek to undo the religious reforms that had taken place. He was unable to stop her ascension, and he was right about her intentions. After his death, a woman named Lady Jane Grey was named queen by the leading politicians of the time, so Mary got herself a force to remove Jane a short nine days after she had been named queen. By 1554, she was executed for treason. Now queen, Mary ruled according to her Catholic beliefs. She abolished her father's lofty religious title in 1555, two years into her five-year reign. She reversed her father's and half-brother's policies and sought to repair ties with the Roman Catholic Church, much to the ire of the Protestants. Not only that, but she executed 283 Protestants, primarily through burning them at the stake. 
small wonder she got the nickname Bloody Mary from the Protestants. When Mary found out she was unable to conceive a child with her husband Philip, it was her half-sister Elizabeth who succeeded her as queen following her death in 1558. Bear in mind, we're still in Henry VIII's children. Each of them had a different mother. In chronological order, they are Catherine of Aragon from 1509 to 1537. She was Catholic and mother to Mary I, making her the oldest of Henry VIII's children. She's also the one Henry sought an annulment from because he decided he wanted her lady-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn. She was 15 years younger than Catherine and refused to have an affair with Henry as long as he was married. The determination to get this annulment is what ultimately led Henry away from the Catholic Church when they refused to grant it. He got his annulment in 1533, though he didn't wait that long to marry Anne. Indeed, he married her secretly in the winter of 1532 and publicly in January of 1533. The annulment wasn't declared until May, at which time his marriage to Anne was declared valid. Though, for all this trouble, he ended up not liking her as a wife. She was unable to bear him a son, though she did give birth to Elizabeth I in September of 1533. She suffered a miscarriage in 1534, at which point Henry considered seeking a divorce, though he ultimately decided not to pursue it. After his first wife Catherine's death in 1536, Henry started wooing Jane Seymour, after which Anne miscarried at around three and a half months, this time with a boy, which is called, by some, the beginning of her downfall. Henry declared he'd been deceived into this marriage and moved Jane into the royal quarters. Anne was accused of adultery, incest, high treason, and ultimately executed on May 19th, two days after her marriage to Henry was declared null and void. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. You can see how this religious turmoil was forming and where his kids fall in it, and we're not even done yet. Jane Seymour was engaged to Henry the day after Anne's execution and became his third wife ten days later. Sadly, this was to be a short marriage. On October 12, 1537, she gave birth to the son Henry had so longed for, Edward VI. Unfortunately, the birth was difficult. I found that she was said to be in labor for two days and nine hours. She died just 12 days later from peripheral fever, which is an infection that can occur after childbirth. Jane is the only one of Henry's six wives to be buried beside him in St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. He next married Anne of Cleves in 1540, which he soon wanted to annul because he wanted to marry someone else. Anne agreed, stating that the marriage was never consummated. Next, he married Catherine Howard in July of 1540, a marriage that lasted until she was beheaded in February of 1542 after her adulterous affair with courtier Thomas Culpepper. His last marriage was to Catherine Parr in July of 1543. While she bore him no children, she was close to the children he already had, and she helped him reconcile with his daughters Mary and Elizabeth. This resulted in the Third Succession Act, which put them back in the line of succession after Edward. Very important. She was his wife at the time of his death on January 28, 1547. Alright, that was a bit of a messy look into European royalty that I bet you weren't expecting today. But it is important to understand how the religious turmoil came to be, 
including how Henry's children ascended the throne in the order that they did. Edward I, being a son even though he was the youngest, then Mary and Elizabeth, as determined by age. Additionally, it shows why Henry separated from the Catholic Church, kicking off the turmoil. And believe me, there is a lot more history to these summarized points I've provided, but I think we've been apart from Christmas enough, and we've gotten what we need from Henry's family for today. Back to the cancellation of Christmas. The Elizabethan settlement put back the Church of England's separation from the Catholic Church and the Pope, which Henry had established when he wanted that annulment, and then later, Mary had undone. Elizabeth was given the title of Supreme Governor of the Church of England, which is the title that persists today and is held by Queen Elizabeth II. Other changes were made to try and appeal to Catholics and Lutherans as well as Protestants, and during her reign, Calvinism was predominant. However, this failed to end the religious turmoil. As is often the case, trying to please everyone ultimately failed. And so we have the Puritans, who felt the settlement just wasn't enough. Following a decisive battle at Nasby in June 1645, the First English Civil War was officially won in 1646, the monarchy overthrown, and the Puritans were able to pursue their own religious agenda. As a result of everything I've talked about with Henry VIII to the war, we find Oliver Cromwell's Puritans canceling Christmas. They saw it as a decadence, which they were trying to remove, and so they removed Christmas. It wasn't for too terribly long, though. In 1660, Charles II, who was a part of the Anglican Church, was named king by English Parliament. A popular choice, as was his choice to restore Christmas, among other reversals of the Puritan policies. However, that didn't mean Christmas made it to the United States with the settlers. Remember when we talked about how the Pilgrims were Puritans a few weeks ago? They were actually more Orthodox than Cromwell and his Puritans were, meaning they wanted no part of Christmas. They fought against it. It was even outlawed in the Massachusetts Bay Colony from 1659 to 1681. No traditions were observed, no shops were closed. It was just another day, and it was actually a criminal act to celebrate, to the tune of a five-shilling fine if caught, which, if I have done the conversions correctly, amounts to about $35.62 in modern U.S. currency. This wasn't true everywhere, though. According to John Smith, Jamestown enjoyed Christmas and openly celebrated. We've come a long way, but Christmas isn't here just yet. The American Revolution wasn't kind to the holiday. With the war involving a rejection of British rule and influence, Christmas was caught up in that rejection. And this time, it wasn't just the Puritans. This national holiday that we know and celebrate wasn't declared a national holiday until June 26, 1870. A tumultuous journey for the holiday, wouldn't you agree? Interesting Christmas takes off in the early 19th century. Class conflict, high unemployment, gang violence, and other turmoil often occurred at Christmas, and the Christmas of the time was more of the wild party type. It still hadn't arrived at the Christmas we know today, and it would take a Christmas riot in 1828 to kick off the changes to Christmas in this country. An important figure in this change is Washington Irving. 
Born in 1783, Irving was, and still is, a well-known author of such stories as The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. He achieved acclaim both in the United States and in Europe, one of the first to accomplish that particular feat. Prior to the 1828 riot, Irving wrote The Sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon Gent in 1819. Included in this book of short stories are five Christmas stories, not based on Christmases he'd celebrated, but on his ideas of what Christmas should be. Warm-hearted gatherings, groups coming together regardless of their status. Also at this time, we find Charles Dickens in Europe. Born in 1812, one of his most popular works is A Christmas Carol, which he wrote in 1843. The story is so popular that more versions have been filmed than any of his other works. During this time, it helped to create an idea that Christmas should be about generosity, that it should center on family and togetherness, a time to give children extra attention and gifts, but without the idea that they're being spoiled. We get several popular phrases from the tale, including the use of Scrooge and Bah Humbug. Additionally, we get the phrase Merry Christmas from the story as well. Not that Dickens invented it. The phrase was around at least several hundred years before his time, but it was his tale that popularized it. So it was that Christmas began to change. Over the next hundred years or so, people in the United States began to build a Christmas tradition. They looked to other customs, such as decorating trees and giving gifts, and many came to believe they were celebrating a tradition much, much older, centuries older, a belief that, for many, persists even to this day. But while the Christmas holiday itself may be old, how we celebrate it is actually relatively new. So, now that we've brought the holiday to what we know and celebrate, let's talk about Santa Claus. He can be traced all the way back to 280 CE, where we find a monk in Turkey named St. Nicholas. The story goes that he gave away everything he owned, all of his possessions, all of his wealth, and he traveled the countryside to help the poor and the sick. In doing so, he came to be known as the protector of children, also of sailors. His presence in terms of popular culture in the United States begins in the late 1700s New York. Remember when I talked about Sinterklaas? Now he's arrived in the States with Dutch families, and it is from his name that we get Santa Claus. Later on, in 1822, an Episcopal minister by the name of Clement Clark Moore wrote a Christmas poem titled An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas. You may be more familiar with its other name, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Here we see the jolly Santa Claus flying in his sled with his reindeer, delivering toys to children. The image of Santa Claus as a jolly man wearing his iconic red suit and equally iconic white beard and carrying his sack of toys came to be in 1881 when cartoonist Thomas Nast looks to the poem for inspiration to create the image of Santa Claus or Old St. Nick as we know him today. Finally, we have Christmas trees. 16th century Germany gets the credit for starting the tradition we know. There, for the first time, we find devout Christians bringing trees into their home in order to decorate them. Many believe Protestant reformer Martin Luther was the first to put lit candles on a tree. 
It is said he was walking home one winter evening and was awed by the stars twinkling among the evergreens. He then recreated the scene for his family with a tree in their home. And that brings us to the present. A long journey, to be sure, and one that isn't very well known. It feels like our traditions are rooted in much older celebrations. To an extent, they are, at least in a way. But the celebration we know, the national holiday established in 1870, was built here, with popular influences and a gathering of other traditions to build something that's both old and new. Trees struggled to catch on here. As late as the 1840s, they were seen as pagan symbols. It was the popular Queen Victoria and her German Prince Albert who were responsible for changing this aversion. They were painted with a Christmas tree, and because she was so popular, what she did quickly caught on around Britain as well as the east coast of the United States. By the 1890s, Christmas trees were on the rise. Europeans preferred small trees, around four feet tall, while Americans wanted floor-to-ceiling trees. Early 20th century saw Americans primarily using homemade ornaments. German Americans were using apples, nuts, and marzipan cookies. Electricity brought Christmas lights, allowing for trees to glow much longer than they had with candles. Soon they were popping up in town squares all over, perhaps the most popular being the Rockefeller Center tree that comes up every year. All around the world, you'll find Christmas trees in a variety of ways. Some live, some artificial, some are made from materials like bamboo and rice paper. Now that we've covered all of that, let's make some connections, though I'm sure many have been made already. First, gift giving. It is found all over. Saturnalia had it, with the expectation that gifts would be cheap in order to avoid showing the wealth of the person giving the gift. Gifts were present in Yule as well. We looked at how gifts were given to people when they went a-wassling with their bowl. These gifts were given by the wealthier members of society. Yalda included some gift-giving too, notably in the form of dried nuts and fruits wrapped with tulle and ribbon. In Hanukkah, we see that there is a gift-giving tradition which takes the form of one gift each day over eight days rather than all gifts being given on one day and gifts are present in Kwanzaa as well. They don't really need much explanation. Gifts are found throughout these celebrations, from the pagan Saturnalia to the Christmas of today. Even before Christmas came to be as we know it, gifts were found in the celebrations. And in many cases, it was not about the value of the gifts. Though, that being said, there is definitely a heavy materialistic emphasis on Christmas today. Think about all the marketing, all the sale papers, all the emails advertising the many wondrous things you can buy someone for Christmas. From a cheap toy to an expensive gaming console. Even cars are advertised as Christmas gifts, which seems kind of extreme to me. Long-term commitment and costs and all that. But that's where we are in terms of gift giving. Of course, there's Santa Claus. He's not really present everywhere, such as Saturnalia. The most direct connections come after the life of St. Nicholas. We find some version of him in Yule in the form of Odin, the long bearded man riding his horse through the sky, listening to hear who has been good or bad. No gift giving though, just listening. He's no Santa, but there are similarities. 
Sinterklaas is, of course, very directly connected. He's got the look, the naughty or nice book. A bit more stern than our jolly fellow. Traditionally, he rides on a white horse with clothes akin to what bishops wear, colored in red and white. A Santa figure we didn't previously cover is Père Noël, which means Father Christmas. He is found in France and other French-speaking areas. Traditionally, kids leave their shoes by the fireplace on Christmas Eve. They fill them with carrots and other treats for Gui, Père Noël's donkey, not a reindeer. The treats are taken and, if the children have been good, presents are left, usually small enough to fit in the shoes, like candy or small toys, maybe even money. Yalda and Kwanzaa have no Santa Claus figure. The same is true of Hanukkah, though there is a recent Jewish book from 2016 called Shmelf the Hanukkah Elf, in which Shmelf is an elf that learns about Hanukkah from Jewish children. Santa decides to make him something like a Jewish Santa, dressed in blue and white, with a Jewish reindeer named Asher. Author Greg Wolf created the story with the aim of giving Jewish children a holiday mascot in a country that is more or less dominated by Santa Claus. Unlike Santa, Schmelf isn't keeping a naughty or nice list. And Jewish kids know their parents bring the gifts, so instead the story centers on kids telling Schmelf what they want, and Schmelf possibly magically influencing the parents, so the gifts given are still determined ultimately by the parents. There is another figure that you don't really hear too much about except in maybe horror movies that I wanted to try and fit in here somewhere. It's kind of like an assistant to St. Nicholas who addresses bad children. Its name is Krampus. Its origins aren't well known, but are believed to go back to pre-Christian Alpine traditions. Generally, Krampus is depicted as hairy, with brown or black hair, cloven hooves, horns of a goat, fangs, and a long pointed tongue. It carries chains for the purpose of frightening bad children. In some cases, it swats bad children with a birch branch. Some depictions even have it carrying off the bad children. So St. Nicholas addresses the good children, and Krampus addresses the bad. Regional variants have emerged in ways such as making Krampus more or less scary, sometimes even humorous. And in other places, Krampus just isn't present at all. Another popular tradition is caroling. Among the celebrations we looked at, the most notable example was a wassailing found in Yule, in which people went singing door-to-door -door with the expectation of gifts. In later traditions, the person at the home would sing back as they gave out a gift. The caroling we know today doesn't involve gifts. It does involve people coming together and singing Christmas carols, sometimes formally gathered, but not always. Sometimes carolers go door to door, other times they stay in one place, such as a park or a mall. Wherever they are, you can be sure that they'll be singing some traditional songs, and maybe even some newer ones. Then there's mistletoe, which really only connects with Yule, in which the goddess Frigg convinced every living thing except mistletoe to agree not to harm her son, Baldur, and the trickster god Loki learned of this oversight and made a weapon with the mistletoe with which Baldur was killed. In a lighter version of the myth, Frigg was able to get Baldur resurrected. She then vowed to kiss anyone who walked under mistletoe 
making people think of love and not death. In some places, such as among Celtic Druids, mistletoe was considered a sacred plant. In others, it was considered a symbol of fertility. In our Christmas, we do have mistletoe tradition, though we don't think of Frigg and Balder. More simply, the tradition is that two people under the mistletoe together are supposed to kiss. One early custom in England was that men could steal a kiss from a woman under the mistletoe, and rejecting him was considered bad luck. Another was that a berry was plucked with each kiss and kissing stopped when they were all gone. These days, though, it's just a tradition for fun. No obligations, no bad luck. There is often some disruption of social order in these festivities. In Saturnalia, we saw that slaves were allowed to be equal and free. They got to live for a time at the same level as everyone else, sometimes even serve food by their owners. During the Feast of Fools, social order was turned completely upside down. This included a Lord of Misrule being elected from among commoners to preside over the feast, with followers willingly doing whatever foolish thing they were told to do. Today's Christmas involves some degree of this as well, though certainly not in the way of these other traditions. Most of it just comes from an increased generosity among some, not all, of the upper class. There's really not much else going on in the form of social class disruption. There's also food, naturally. Part of Saturnalia involved a festive banquet, although we don't know much about what exactly was eaten at this banquet. Yule had some notable foods that we still have today, and inspired at least one other. In particular, they had the Christmas boar. Yalda has a definite emphasis on food. Watermelons are significant in that the red color represents the dawn as well as the glow of life. Other fruits and nuts are also present. There is also the custom in some areas where 40 varieties of food are served. That is a lot of food. Hanukkah also has some specific customs with food. Traditionally, latkes and jam-filled donuts are served, which tie into the oil of the menorah since they are themselves fried in oil. Kwanzaa too has food, with a special meal on December 31st called karamu. As for Christmas, one of the most traditional foods is a Christmas ham, not entirely different from the Christmas boar of Yule. Christmas dinner on the whole tends to vary from place to place, but traditionally involves family gathering around this special meal regardless of what is served. There's also the Yule log. In terms of a log, these days it's often candles arranged on a log rather than a large log being burned. But there's also a food that's been inspired by this log. It's a sponge cake that is rolled and filled with cream, then it's frosted with chocolate buttercream so that it looks like tree bark. Then it's given edible decorations like meringue mushrooms, marzipan holly sprigs, and others. This came about when, following the advent of Christianity, homes with hearths were normal, which made burning large yule logs impractical. However, these small hearths were good for baking cakes. They may have emerged as early as the 17th century, but Parisian bakers were responsible for making the Yule log cake popular in the 19th century. Well, that about covers it. A lot of it, anyway. Christmas has a long history and can be connected in many ways to other celebrations, not just the ones we talked about. 
There's so much more. I may just have to do a Christmas part two next year. For now, feel free to talk about anything I've left out. As always, discussion on social media is a great way to keep the conversation going. You may be wondering about next week, since we've just finished our analysis and connections episode for the month. I've decided to take the week off for the holidays, so there won't be an episode. Among other things, this does mean that I'll have some extra time to get us back to our Tuesday release schedule. For now, I hope you all continue to enjoy the holiday season, and we'll meet again in 2021. Until then, take care.